Born Again Mormon, uh, the book that sort of started things, and uh, this book is available at Lifeway Christian Bookstores, Christian Gift and Bible, Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake, Utah Lighthouse Ministry, Oasis Books Logan, Gift of Grace in Springville, Living Word Bookstore in Twin Falls, Idaho, Christian Center Books in Park City, and of course online at hotm.tv. Well, we've got another book for your consideration. It is meant to go along with our programming for 2011 and 2012. And its title is, If My Kingdom Were of This World, Then My Servants Would Fight. A Believer's Refusal to Join Modern Christian Culture. It lays out how far afield uh, we have come as a body of believers relative to political action and why it is such a dangerous avenue to take, especially relative to the Mormon agenda and joining hands with them to fight against the social ills of this nation. Where can you get it? www.hotm.tv. That's if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. And it's at hotm.tv. Now, if you order the book now, you will get a copy of this great DVD. It is the Bible uh, versus the Book of Mormon. And uh, it's put out by SourceFlix. And everybody who gets uh, and orders, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. We will also send with you a DVD copy of this uh, uh, great DVD, which helps uh, you understand the difference between the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Uh, since 1847, this very state has been under the thumb, literally, of the LDS Church. It's been uh, essentially a theocracy. Uh, if you do something against the church, there was a time when you would even lose your life. Um, today, of course, that doesn't happen, but people do lose family, they do lose their job, and they do lose social acceptance because they resist Mormon authority. Last week, I read a letter verbatim from an active Mormon who was petitioning the mayor of Spanish Fork to kill the show. Well, in one way, this man succeeded. Uh, this morning, when last week's program re-aired, the station manager made the decision to edit my reading of that letter out of the program. Why did he do that? Was it because I used vulgar language? No. Did I use uh, um, uh, obscenities or rude gestures? No. Uh, the bottom line must be, I'm guessing, must have been fear. Fear of the way I read that, I read that inane sort of sophomoric letter from a written to a government official asking him to take action against our First Amendment rights. Um, we were also invited to take this program elsewhere by management if we didn't like them uh, censoring this material. The theocracy continues, even in the hearts of some Christian believers, to reign in this state. I would ask you to join us in prayer for the management of this station. We love the owners. They are great to us. The management is fearful. And we pray as a, his brother and as uh, your his brother in Christ that he will find the courage to, s to stand up against the theocracy that puts fear into the heart of men. We have no need to fear. If someone writes a governmental uh, official and says, we have to shut down this show that speaks against this thing that I believe, especially which is a deception, it takes courage sometimes to stand up against that stuff. And so our hearts go out and hope that the station management will change their view. And, and there was nothing wrong about reading that letter in the kind of sardonic, 
sarcastic way I read it. I read it verbatim, but uh, he felt it necessary to rip it out of, without even telling us, just ripped it out of the program this morning. We won't get anywhere in this state if, if, if you just can't get rid of the fear. So pray for the management of the station that we can overcome this and move forward as brothers and sisters in Christ. And with that, let's have a prayer. God in heaven, we need you as we continue on to uh, try to expose the truth amidst the darkness. We pray for our volunteers and uh, for everybody who's involved in the things of this ministry. We pray for our technical staff. We've had some issues tonight, Lord, and we pray that you will step in, send your angels to fix this, these things. And we pray for those who are seeking and searching and wanting to know the truth, that you will open their uh, mind's eye, that they can see it. In Jesus' name, amen. There are a number of things that truly distinguish members of the LDS Church from people of other faiths. Joseph Smith is one, polygamy is one, extra books of scripture, wearing temple garments, and serving two-year missions are others. But perhaps the most widely observed differentiation is the LDS's highly self-publicized, remember that highly self-publicized practice of refusing tobacco, alcohol, coffee, tea, or using illegal drugs. Within Mormonism itself, the commandment for abstaining from these things comes from a revelation Joseph Smith claimed to receive, and they call it the Word of Wisdom. And it's located in the 89th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, some of their scripture. Let me prime you with some of the facts about the LDS and their health code before we compare it with what the Bible says. First, Obedience to this word of wisdom, which says don't even eat meat uh, except sparingly and in the proper season and uh, eat lots of fruits and vegetables and don't drink alcohol or strong drink. Uh, don't drink. It doesn't say coffee or tea. It says uh, hot drinks. And it says those things in it. And it's kind of set in an 1833 way, the way it's spoken. Uh, but active Latter-day Saints take great pride in the never haves. I never have tasted wine. I never have smoked a cigarette in my life. I never have drank a sip of coffee. Many Latter-day Saints use the existence of the word of wisdom as perfect evidence, they say, that Joseph Smith was divinely inspired because according to them, he revealed it in 1833, well before modern science knew the dangers of alcohol and using tobacco or coffee or tea or eating lots of meat. What they didn't know, or what they don't know, is that health-related issues were a hot topic well before Joseph Smith was even born. And that by the time he had received his revelation in 1833, the American Temperance Society had grown to well over a million members, and most of them were leaders of the Christian clergy. Bottom line, what people ate and drank and how they cared for their body was a very important social topic within the body of Christ and um, well before Joseph Smith incorporated all of it or summarized all of it in his ahem, revelation. These ideas were made popular by the likes of John Wesley, who condemned strong drink, Sylvester Graham, the guy who invented the graham cracker, and Dr. William Alcott, who crusaded strongly against stimulants that, such as coffee, tea, and all meats. And then there's tobacco. In research going back as far as 1633, we are able to locate the idea that tobacco should be used as an herb for bruises for cattle. Advice Joseph Smith included in the revelation 
uh, of his word of wisdom. And by 1830, there was a strong anti-tobacco lobby which had taken root on American soil, which was part of the which was part of a popular health reform movement that began in New England and spread all the way to Ohio, where Joseph Smith had spent some good, a good amount of time. Again, well before Joseph's word of wisdom, health reform people, again, including Sylvester Graham, Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventists, very, very strong in the health practices. That's why the, uh, the uh, Seventh-day Adventists are usually considered equal with the Mormons in terms of what they will eat. In fact, even maybe more uh, uh, strong in their uh, health habits. The Kellogg family, the Tony the Tiger guy, the Kellogg family was huge in that movement. Uh, and C.W. Post, the grape nut breakfast people, openly condemned, openly, tobacco, alcohol, coffee, tea, opium, and other stimulants. The, the next thing to consider is Joseph Smith didn't even follow his own revelation. Now, according to the LDS, he did, but that's a total deception. Uh, LDS writer John L. Stewart wrote a book called Joseph Smith the Prophet, and on page 90 of this book, he presents a very typical representation of Joseph Smith to the everyday reader, saying, quote, The prophet himself carefully observed the word of wisdom and insisted upon its observance by other men in high positions, end quote. Even late scholar Hugh Nibley wrote in his book, Sounding Brass, Where is the evidence that Joseph Smith drank alcohol? End quote. Now, prior to the word of wisdom revelation, Joseph certainly consumed alcohol. You can read about it in Church History, Volume 2, page 26, but this is permissible, not hypocritical in the least. I would suppose that many people in that day and age took a nip here and there, but did Joseph Smith drink alcohol or approve of drinking alcohol after 1833 when the word of wisdom came forth? Absolutely. He had a bar in his house. He drank alcohol. In fact, um, we did an earlier program in 2008 on the Word of Wisdom, and you can go through and hear about all the references of him drinking alcohol. Uh, I found all of those at utlm.org. So go to that if you want to check my sources and see. But let me put it this way. Even on the day Joseph Smith died, he consumed alcohol. That's found in History of the Church, Volume 6, page 616. Okay? So in 1898, nearly 45 years after the death of Joseph Smith, the first presidency and quorum of the Twelve Apostles sat down and they had to decide, what are we going to do with this word of wisdom thing we've got? And uh, an apostle, uh, Lorenzo Snow, he believed that the word of wisdom should be lived to the letter that included no meat because Joseph Smith, he argued, taught that animals have spirits and so we don't eat meat. And that was his justification. Now, either the word of wisdom is from God's mouth or it isn't. Um, either it is to be obeyed uh, to display worthiness or it's not. Either a man is defiled by having a glass of wine or a woman is defiled by that or they are not. But it seems that at the turn of the century, LDS leaders clearly could, really couldn't agree upon what was true and right regarding the word of wisdom. Uh, some of the apostles enjoyed drinking Danish beer, they called it, or current wine. LDS apostles Anton H. Lund, Charles Penrose, and Matthias Cowley are just three apostles who supposedly, uh, or not supposedly, who loved Danish beer and current wine. Emmeline B. Wells, a member of the Relief Society presidency and later president, enjoyed a cup of coffee, and George Albert Smith took brandy for medicinal reasons. <laughs> uh, that's the same reason I drink tequila when I get a cold. Just kidding. Total joke. Uh, however, by 1902, the first presidency and the 12 agreed that we're not going to fellowship with anybody who frequents or operates 
a saloon. That was 1902. I wonder why they don't do that today with the Marriott guys who have more hotels and bars and porn uh, TV in their hotels. Why don't they disassociate with the Marriott's? Instead, they let them build a center at BYU. You know, but there's no, there's no inconsistency here with Mormonism, business, and doctrine, is there? Three years later, by 1905, the campaign to sort of obey the word of wisdom or not uh, started to come forth, and the first presidency, to make it a consistent focus, decided, well, you know what? Beginning July of 1906, we're going to change sacramental wine into water, okay? Because we don't want to be inconsistent, and so we'd rather change the element that Jesus Christ himself introduced to represent his blood, the wine, the grape, the wine of the grape, we're going to change that so our members won't uh, ever partake of wine again. So now they use rotten tap water to represent the blood that Jesus shed that cleanses all sin. You go to any church in the world, what do they use? Tap water. And it's, it's usually vulgar. I mean, can't they give a little bit for him? Can't they do anything that he said? Anything in that way. In, 18, in 1921, Heber J. Grant uh, made adherence to the word of wisdom requisite for entering the temple. And from that point forward, the word of wisdom, 1920s, uh, was mandatory. In March of 1917, Frederick J. Pack of the University of Utah published an article in the LDS magazine, The Improvement Era, which asked the question, should LDS drink Coca-Cola? His answer in the LDS rag was an emphatic, no. Why? Because even though it was not prohibited in the word of wisdom, such drinks contained some of the same things that are in coffee and tea. One rule for worthiness will always lead to more. Remember that. And so rabid was this topic among uh, the Mormons that the Coca-Cola company actually called President Heber J. Grant and said, please curb your fanaticism and set him straight on the facts. The LDS leadership has not taken official stand on the use of caffeinated soft drinks, except to say that a member should not use the substance uh, that is harmful to the body or addictive. Perhaps one of the most important things about the Word of Wisdom before we talk about the Bible is its canonicity. Is it doctrine? A vote was taken in 1881 where the sustaining members said, we vote Doctrine and Covenants section 89, the Word of Wisdom, into our canon. It is doctrine. But what makes this interesting is built into the revelation itself, God himself says, this revelation is not by way of commandment. He, God himself said, this isn't a commandment. It's just by way of good advice. The leaders said, we've, I mean, the members voted it into canonicity and they voted in God's word that said, this is not a commandment into canonicity. And yet now you have to obey that if you're going to be considered an active, faithful Mormon. Well, what does the Bible say about human beings and what they eat and drink and smoke or ingest? Let's step back a moment and first look at what God had in mind relative to his people and what they took into their bodies. As we move along through this discussion, gently ask yourself, why our great God Almighty, creator of all things, created coffee beans? And why he created tea leaves and grapes and animal meat that tastes so darn good? Uh, now, originally, it seems God granted the use of vegetables and fruits for the food of man, with the exception of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We read in Genesis, quote, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree which is in the which, in the which 
is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, shall be for food. I am of the personal opinion that the use of animal food was probably not known to the antediluvians. That's the people who were preceded Noah. I may be wrong about that, but I think so. Nevertheless, it seems like after the flood, Noah is at this point given a distinct law on the subject of eating animals. Genesis 9, 2-4, it says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hands are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, you shall not eat. That was the only thing God said you can't eat. From Noah to Moses, this is what they could do. They could eat all of it. Anything they wanted was all in their power. When the children of Israel fled from Egypt, God wanted to raise up a people who were separate from the rest of the pagan nations. And um, he instituted a number of things that would keep them separate. And their dietary laws were very effective at accomplishing this. We can read about them in Leviticus 11. These restrictions automatically and immediately segregated the children of Israel from the rest of the world. This, in my opinion, was the primary motivation for the dietary laws, plus some other health issues. But primarily, it set them apart. But where Joseph Smith's word of wisdom has God say that meat was not so good and that strong drink and wine were not so good and were forbidden now, they are actually, there is actually a lot more liberty in God's plan for the children of Israel and what they could eat and drink. In, uh, in fact, listen to the tenor of God's voice in Deuteronomy, what he talks about here. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 14, 25. It's a discussion about money. And then verse 26, it says, And thou shalt bestow that money for whatever, whatsoever thou soul lusteth after, for oxen, for sheep, or for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatever thou soul desires, and thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice, thou and thine household. That is a very open thing for the children of Israel. He says God is, is supporting living the human life. Why, where God's covenant people were permitted to eat as much as they, uh, meats as they so lusted, it says, and to buy and drink strong drink and wine in times of rejoicing, Joseph's God outdid himself with the Mormons and said, no, no, no. You need to be restricted and sterile, even though the founding prophet said, yes, yes, yes. Uh, simply put, the word of wisdom, like the demand to wear temple garments, is all about one thing. Control, control, control. A people should be free in Christ. Instead, they have re-implemented control. But where the dietary commands have served to keep the children of Israel separate and peculiar, the word of wisdom does, uh, like the word of wisdom does for the Mormons, dietary laws do nothing to keep a people from the more egregious sins of their heart, like pride. The fact underscores the difference between the children of Israel and living in the law and Christians living by faith in the dispensation of grace. In Acts chapter 15, well after Jesus ascended into heaven, a group of Pharisees attempted to reinstitute part of the law, the rite of circumcision, back upon the backs or other parts of general converts, Gentile converts. In response to this Pharisaical appeal to religion, Luke reports in Acts 15, quote, and the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. 
And when they had, when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. The apostles knew what it would take to keep them, the Gentile converts, from their sinful and rebellious ways. It was not circumcision. It wasn't a day of worship. It wasn't a strict dietary code of from refusing certain things to eat and drink. It was faith. Herein is the main difference between legalistic rules and grace, religion and relationship, outward adherence versus inward change. In preparation for what he was about to accomplish, Jesus began to introduce to his followers some transitional thinking that subtly moved them away from outward observances toward inward allegiance for him. In Matthew 15, 11, he said, Not that which goeth into the mouth defiles a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, that defiles a man. Did you hear that, Bishop? Stake President Thomas Monson? Not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man. That which comes out of the mouth defiles a man. That's Jesus' words. Do you hear that, Latter-day Saints, who feel holy because you don't drink tea? I mean, do you hear what he says? It's your hearts that are defiled. It is not what you eat, drink, smoke, or inject. I know that's heavy. I know those things are bad for us. But still, it has nothing to do with the heart. After Jesus said this to the disciples, they came running to him and they said, You've offended the Pharisees. You've offended the Pharisees. Jesus replied, Do you not yet understand that whatsoever entereth into the mouth goes into the belly and is cast out into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. I personally would place all of my money on the drunkard, on the smoker, on the crack addict who knows the Lord's gospel, weak in the flesh, dying, destroying themselves in the flesh for sure, but know the Lord's gospel of grace a trillion times over, some teetotaling aesthetic who thinks because he has never smoked or drank, he is worthy or more righteous for the kingdom of God. Certainly, good wisdom in what we eat and drink lends to a better, more qualitative life. But obedience to a demanded system in order to prove worthiness is nothing but a pro throwback to the way that even failed the children of Israel. And yet Mormonism today has resurrected these legalism and requires all to obey who want to receive what they say is necessary for salvation, which is their temple rites, their rituals, and their sacraments. If you smoke and drink and you, and you do those things, you cannot partake of their sacraments or go, or go to their temples or be worthy to be, uh, receive baptism under the uh, uh, decisions of some bishops. Unbelievable. Paul made this point perfectly clear in Romans 14, 17, when he said, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. 
You see, once Jesus erased sin, death, disease, what people eat or drink just became a big, fat, non-event. Sometimes literally. Excuse me, what did I just say? I said, once Jesus erased and took upon himself all of this, these things have, they don't have bearing on your spirituality or your ability to receive Christ. They can destroy you. So the word of wisdom in and of itself is good advice. But that advice was given by Kellogg and Post well before Joseph Smith got into the game. These things are normal. I mean, you find atheists who eat really well. Go into good earth or whole earth markets and watch what people buy. And then ask them, what do you believe? I believe in a little trinket on my, on my, uh, on my fireplace. He is my God. But they're eating really, really well. I mean, it has nothing to do with God and, and, and Jesus. All are invited into the kingdom of God. The way is open to black people and to white people and to Gentile people and Jewish people and women people and men people and and slave people and midget people and gay and straight people and sin people and smoker people and drinker people and drug people and people who dress badly people and people who dress goodly people and rich people and poor people and armed people and people who don't have armed people and, and regardless of who they are, all freaking people or what they have done or what they continue to do, this he did on the cross was unconditional love and peace and forgiveness and joy that comes to you if you receive him. Not what you take in. Not what you take in. How about some more? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, but meat commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse? Do you need anything more? Speaking of all legalisms Mormons try to enforce, Paul wrote in Colossians 2.16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect to a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbaths. Does this sound like Mormonism? Judging people on what they drink or what they do on Sundays? He says, don't let anyone judge you in those things. All this being said, there is perhaps no more better, better summation of the biblical Christian approach to eating and drinking of any and all things than what is found in Romans chapter 14. It's so important. I'm going to take the time. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to, ra- I'm going to read you the first, I think, 10 verses. Listen to what it says in Romans uh, 14. And then remember what Joseph Smith uh, supposedly revealed and what they're enforcing upon you today. 14.1, him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believes that he may eat all things. Another, who is weak, eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth, for God has received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth eateth to the Lord, he that give thanks he for he give God thanks, and he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not. And giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth unto himself, and no man dieth unto himself. 
For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the living and dead. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, my friends, any fool can make a rule. Any leader can talk like Peter. That last one's my original thing. Um, But the liberty of the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be counterfeited or feigned. There is no worthiness that God sees you in because of what you eat or drink. Righteousness and worthiness was offered singularly in the form of his son once and for all. And we have access to it by faith and faith alone. Eat well, sure. Avoid addictions, absolutely. It's good. But don't ever think you are worthy or better than, or, or better than another person because you have been wise in how you eat where others have stumbled. You might be surprised to find that while you might have clear lungs and a healthy body, others less strong possess the better heart, the better part, which would be a generous, loving heart for the Lord. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. First time callers, please. LDS callers preferred, turn your television sets down. We've got a lot of people waiting. If it's a busy signal, you get a message, keep trying. While the operators are sifting the wheat from the tares, let me tell you two things. First of all, the website, uh, we have ministry products uh, from Israel. We have beautiful, all of these are hand carved. They're olive wood. And uh, this is a Bible, for instance. And uh, it says Jerusalem on the back. All of them come from the Holy Land. Olive wood cross. They're beautiful. And then, of course, a little miniature of my friend from last week. And, uh, and we have a camel there, hand carved out of olive wood products. Uh, we support Israel. These products support Israel, the nation of Israel, and the people who are creating these help their economy, and then they donate to the ministry uh, portion of everything people buy. So it helps you, it helps them, helps us if you're interested. Also, if you're leaving the LDS church, if you're abandoning ship, do not fear. Um, Letters to have your name removed usually end with some horrible thing. A good dear friend of mine just gave me today his letter, and it ends with, from the church office building in Salt Lake City, in view of the eternal consequences of such action. The brethren urge you to reconsider your request and to prayerfully consider the enclosed statement from the First Presidency. And then the First Presidency statement, they send you a little pamphlet. It says, come back, stand with us, feast at the table laid before you in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and strive to follow the Good Shepherd. It's inferred here that if you leave the Mormon church, you're not striving to follow the good shepherd. It's inferred here that the good shepherd's not enough. You need to be a member of their church. And if you're not, they say, this carries with it eternal consequences. It's baloney. It's fear. It's a lie. You go and you separate. You've abandoned ship from that thing. And you say, God, you are enough. That's faith. You say, I put my, my, my faith and trust in Jesus on the cross, resurrected from the dead, sitting on the right hand of God. He's my king. You put your full faith and trust in that and tell them to take a hike. That's faith. That's fearless faith. And God will reward you for that. Don't let them scare you with this type of stuff. Okay, so uh, with all that maniac talking, let's see. Paul, Salt Lake City. Uh, we have a Harriman girl. We have Lorna in... West Jordan, Utah, and we have Dwayne from Ogden. 
Uh, I'm going to pick up Lorna, who's LDS, first-time caller. Lorna, you're on Heart of the Matter. Lorna? Maybe this is where we're going to have our issues tonight. Lorna. Okay, Lorna, stay on the line, I guess. And I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Let's go to line three. Are you there? Uh, We're going to have problems with the phones. So phone people keep working on it. In the meantime, I'm going to talk about a few other things. Seems like the Provo Tabernacle burned down last week. And the Deseret News, uh, I guess, showed a picture. The only picture that survived the burn-up was a picture of Jesus uh, coming down from the clouds. The Deseret News printed that as though it was evidence that maybe God was behind them. I'd like to point out to the Deseret News that all the pictures of their prophets and all the pictures of Joseph Smith and all the pictures of everything else, Mormon, was gone. And the only thing that lasted was a picture of Jesus. So maybe uh, they need to reflect upon that and see that sign as something a little bit different. Turmoil, trouble, and whining. It's coming in through the, the masses to the ministry. This is from Larry B. He says, Sean, are you a Christian Zionist? Do you believe that we'll be blessed because of the Jews? Or... Is it that all nations of the world will be blessed because of the one God-made man and that was born in their lineage? Your Mormon heritage might be obfuscating your vision some here. If you were to study the Zionist movement both religiously and historically and get a better sense for the beguilement that is every bit as deep as Mormon beguilement, which you know, you would run from this product promotion. You would run from this product promotion Uh, thing for Israel because these people represent anything but Christianity. The Jewish nation of Israel is not our hope, my friend. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. The house of Israel was was about as rejecting of the one true God as any people has ever been. They did not live up to their covenant and continue not to today. We do not depend or have any affinity towards them as they are simply another branch of God's fallen children. They are not our hope. Well, Larry, I want you to know that the Bible says otherwise. Not that there are hope. The only hope I've ever talked about in here is Christ Jesus and Jesus alone. But they are his covenant people and he made promises to them and he is going to fulfill them. And uh, you, you write in here that they haven't lived up to their covenant. Well, neither have you. So whatever covenants you've made with God, you haven't lived up to them either. The nation of Israel, the Jews are his covenant people and God has promised them. And God says, if you, if you honor them, he will honor you. And so, and this is actually kind of hateful. Do you, do you hate the Jews, Larry? I mean, are you a Christian who hates the Jews? If you are, open up your Bible and read, my friend. We are pro-Israel. I believe God will do what he has promised to do with them. I have no hope in them, but they are, in my opinion, regardless of their states, uh, part of God's chosen people. And I am I'm grateful, as Paul says, grateful for their rejection. Paul says, because of their rejection, the gospel has been afforded to me, you know, as a Gentile. So your thinking's a little bit off, Larry. And if you guys don't like it, I don't care. It's, it's the way it's going to be. Okay, should we try it again? No, we shouldn't try it again. Uh, this is from uh, Rodinia, who lives in Canada. I just watched your show on racism, uh, uh, episode 240, and I was a bit disappointed that it was not, you did not make clear during that show what the curse of Cain actually was. 
Many people, certainly all Mormons and including some Christians, seem to believe that the curse of Cain was black skin. I really wish that it was made very clear that nowhere in the Bible does it state that black skin was the curse of Cain. And he or she goes on to say some interesting things. Listen, the curse of Cain was that the fruit of the earth would not yield to him. And she gives scriptural reference. He says, your brother's blood cries out for me from the ground. Now you are under the curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to you to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer in the earth. That's Genesis 4, 10 through 12. So she provided, or he provided, excellent uh, biblical reference teaching us something. I didn't teach that. That the curse was that the ground would not yield its fruit to Cain. And then it goes, uh, he goes on to say, it is my personal belief that the mark was not only a way to protect and identify Cain, but it was also to prolong his life, giving him a chance to repent. This is his own interpretation. And he says that Cain basically feared because he would be a wanderer and a vagabond, that people would see him and try to kill him. And so God then put a mark on him and said, anyone who would kill him would suffer vengeance seven times over. Nowhere does it say that the mark was or is a color. The mark could have been any way of identifying a person, including the, the fact that Cain was unable to grow anything from the land. That seems very reasonable to me. And this, this whole black thing is false. Finally, <clears throat> this person said, I was born in Brazil and was actually the first person baptized in Manas in the Amazon River in 1976. In fact, the church in Amazon started in our very living room. My family was devoted to the church and at par with it. Coincidentally, in 1978, the Sao Paulo Temple was being built. When the government of Brazil found out that blacks would not be able to enter the temple, they halted the construction and threatened to withdraw the church's charity status in the country until that policy was changed. In fact, the members of the church in Brazil were urged to fast and pray so that the Lord would, quote, soften the hearts of our government and allow the temple to be built. Lo and behold, he says, that very same year, a prophet of the LDS Church, Spencer W. Kimball, received a revelation from God and all was well. It seemed to me that the Lord decided to change the mind of this prophet instead of getting politically involved. I've seen the light. I've removed my name along with my family uh, from the records of almost eight years now and goes on to say that they are deceptive, they lie, and that he is free from that. Uh, let's see, got a note here about the phones. We will write the questions for me, all right? The first question, doesn't the LDS Church have an interest in Miller Beer and Philip Morris? Uh, no idea, because uh, they, they don't really reveal their portfolio. And in fact, we are going to get into the church's portfolio and all of their earthly meanderings in 2011. So I've heard that they own Coca-Cola stock. I'm sure that they have portfolio managers who buy all kinds of things in mutual funds and, and individual stock positions. I doubt that the, the LDS church said, hey, or that apostle called up and said, hey, buy Miller beer now and sell at 50. I mean, but they probably have had many of those things. They're, they're a corporation and they, they, they deal in those things. You're going to be astounded at the type of money that they bring in and you'll be uh, laughing about the money they have given out when we talk about that next time. Dwayne from Ogden wants to give you encouragement regarding your censorship. He says, lift your voice like a trumpet. Okay, I will. 
Friends from Ohio asks, do you think the 12 apostles really believe the doctrine of the church and buy into it, or are they just part of the corporation of the church? I think at the 12 apostle level, um, they have to be aware and they probably have sold their minds out to let belief and power and the uh, status of their church position override facts. There's no way you can sit down and read the facts of this church and not question. And then when the questioning comes, say, nope, I'm turning it off. I'm going to believe what I want to believe because it's convenient for me. Um, so as far as the 12 apostles, I would guess that. I've heard some of them absolutely know. I heard some of them are real true believers. When you move on down the ranks, I know there are so many. Oh, I wish, I hope you're watching tonight. If you're one of these people, and I know you're out there, who you know that it's a joke. You don't believe it, but you keep playing the game. Do yourself a favor. Do your family a favor. Do, do your spouse a favor. It's a favor. And go to www.utlm and start looking. Go to a Bible-believing church or don't. Keep going to the Mormon church, but open up your Bible and just start reading in John. Not the LDS version that, that messes everything up. Just open a Bible and start reading in John and pray to God and say, please open my eyes to the truth. Because I'm going to tell you something. Like they warn in this letter, it has eternal consequences. It does. It has eternal consequences. When you walk away from Mormonism, you walk into the arms of the Lord if, if the Lord's the reason you're leaving. Now, I had a discussion with a pastor the other day, and he said, I'm not sure it's so good for people to walk away if they don't walk away from the Lord. I might even agree. I mean, if I have a child who's going to walk away just to this world and just die in this world and live in hell for eternity or stay Mormon and die and run the risk of going to hell or heaven, depending on how much Jesus the child's able to assimilate into their heart, then I would rather have him stay Mormon. I mean, I, I don't have this grinding need to, to get everybody out of the Mormon church just because I hate Mormonism. I have a grinding need to get them to want to leave because they have found out who Jesus is. And that's the important thing about the program. We are not saying abandon ship into nothingness. We're saying find out who Jesus is. Go to him, get on your knees, pray, ask him, open my eyes and ears. Let me know the truth. It is so worth it to your eternal salvation. Okay, uh, next one. Want to try the phones? We'll give it a try. I'm just going to push one. Well, hear a phone. Are you there? Are you there? Are you there? Are you there? Sounds like my dating life. Are you there? No one's there. Okay. Email or ask what the best verse is to give an LDS friends to be, bring them to the light. You know, I, I don't have a best verse. I love Romans chapter 10. I love the whole book of Romans. If you can do a verse by verse study, because it really goes through and Paul says, hey man, I have a heart for my brothers of Israel. They, they, they have a heart for God, but they think they're going to reach him by their own righteousness. So I have a heart for them. They don't realize the righteousness of God. And they don't realize that, that God is a trillion miles up in infinity in righteousness and they are laying in the mud. And that's, that's the big difference between them. And Paul is, it says, essentially says, come and, and I hope my brethren will hear. And so that's maybe re, have them read uh, uh, Romans chapter uh, 10. Paul asked, before you were born again, did you have a testimony of Mormonism? And how do you know uh, when you're born again? Uh, I had a testimony of Mormonism as an ism just like any ism or an ist or a philosophy. I believed Mormonism was the true church. 
I believe the Mormon way of going and dressing up on Sunday and going to activity nights during the week and, and collecting fast offerings and passing the sacrament and doing bishops interviews and the scouting program and families are forever and family home evening. I believed Mormonism was the true church. Uh, I didn't really know necessarily about Joseph Smith when I went on the mission. I kind of bought into that pretty much, hook, line, and sinker. I still had some doubts lingering out there. But uh, I, 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 I was into it in terms of everything it offered and, and bought into it as best as I could. Comparing it with what I know now in, in Jesus, it's night and day. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Plato, he, he taught through Socrates that all human humanity goes down into a cave and that cave has the bright sun shining down into it and all of humanity goes way deep where there's no light and all of humanity faces this wall and behind that wall is this is another wall and and in between there's a fire so there's a fire and then there's this wall and and these shadows go by and they and they sh and they do certain things and all of humanity is watching the wall and it's watching these shadows do these things plato 400 years before Christ teaches that all of humanity watches these shadows and believes that's what reality is. And Plato says, and then maybe there's a philosopher king who will break away from that group and run toward around the fire and run out of the cave and come into the light and come into what the world is and see the trees and see what God has created. And they break away from all the imagery they're watching that are just shadows on a wall. And you see, that, that's just a basic concept for humanity. We look at those things, but we, 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 and we think they're reality. You LDS people who fervently believe golden plate stories and Pearl of Great Price stories and temple ritual stories, you're just watching shadows on a wall. You've been looking at them since you were a kid. And I'm, I'm challenging you to break the chains and run for the exit. Because he asked, how do you know you're born again? I want to tell you something. It's not a feeling. What it is, the best way I can describe it, and I've talked about this before, is it's like your sight. Your sight is a sense, yes, but it's not something you feel. It's something you see. When I came to know the Lord, I saw the world in a completely different way. The day I was born again, that night, I saw creation differently. I saw life in a different way. I saw myself relative to God in a different way. As a Mormon, I saw myself progressing up toward Him and being better and better like Him. When I came to know the true and living God, I saw myself for what I was, truly a failure and needing of a savior. So it's how you see the world and those things begin to let you know that you're born again. As you read the word, your eyes open. You see the word in a different way. This is all open to you. Jesus offers and he comes. He says, everyone can have it. All you need to do is humbly go and say, save me. Forgive me of my sin. I, I, I need you in my life. I'm a Mormon my whole life. I, I don't know any other way. Or I've been a, 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 of another religion. I've been a Baptist my whole life. I've been a Catholic my whole life. I've done this my whole life. But man, I, I just don't know the way. What do I do? And so what, what you do is you go and you say, I don't know what's true, but God, open my eyes, change my heart, give me a new spirit. And so he does that for you. And when he does... You will be like that philosopher king who breaks the chains and runs for the exit and sees life for the first time. And you, there's, not, there's not enough money in this world that can, that can pay for that. That freedom and knowing God intimately, your spirit being reborn. Okay? Caller says, the word of wisdom says you can drink red wine if you make it. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and he can't argue with me. <laughs> it doesn't say 
<laughs> there might be something in the history of church that says if you make it, it's fine. Uh, but I really don't, I mean, I'm going on memory here. I haven't read it in a while, but I really don't believe, I might take back my ugly face there uh, because I just don't believe it says if you make your own red wine, it's okay. All right. Going up to the top, the top, trying to read. Well, let me go to this one. Uh, this is from Joe at Mountain Life. He says, have you ever read a Mormon, have you ever heard of a Mormon using references to Jesus going to the top of a mountain to get his temple ordinances done? Is there any backing for this? Uh, it's such a big jump. It seems far-fetched that anyone would pull it out of thin air. Again, we're talking about the LDS, what the LDS says when Jesus went on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Talmud suggests that this possibly was the place where Jesus received his temple endowments. Uh, and that in the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are down there look, looking up, and, and, and Jesus is having a dialogue with Moses and Elijah about what he's about to do, about his coming death. The LDS say what that really was, wink, wink, is Jesus was receiving his ordinances. Yeah, I'm not kidding you. All right, uh, so Philip from England, an avid watcher, says the show is frustrating him because Mormons don't call and say what they believe. He thinks you need to be harder on them. I whip them. I punch and kick them. But they, all the hardness on them doesn't help, Philip. No, you know what? It's common for them. They, they are duplicitous by training. They are taught, don't, they are embarrassed to share their faith. I mean, I literally, I live, for five years now, I've lived almost on the streets of Salt Lake. Every day, for some of it, I, I didn't have a place to stay. I slept in a certain place, and then I didn't have a place to stay. And I go, and when I, I'm sitting right next to people who I know, know me, and they, and, and, and they, they have all this, they act, they are so fearful. And, they, and if they say, I know you do that show, they'll just be like, yeah, yeah, I know you do that show, nice to see you. They are so afraid. If you bring it up, they are fearful. And that's because of the way they've been trained. So, Philip, we have to try to keep reaching them through this. This is a beautiful medium, and I'll tell you why. They can sit in the quiet of their home, and they can watch the show, and no one knows, and they can look around, and then when the wife comes in, they can switch the channel, and, uh, and then they can go back, then they can go to the archives, and it's a great place for them to say, hey, I hate that Sean McCraney guy. If you hate me, that's fine. Prove me wrong. Go to utlm.org, look at your facts, okay? Uh, try the phone again, it says. Let's give it a go. Phone? Nope. Phone? Nope. Phone. We're sorry. I know we got a lot of good callers out there. Keep trying. We've had numerous technical difficulties, and we don't know why, but uh, Lord does. Have you ever doubted your leaving the LDS church? Yeah, when I first came out of the Mormon church... You're, you have doubts. You wonder uh, because you've left a total way of life and you've left a, a church that is, in terms of religion, a very good religion. And you don't have those clear eyes to necessarily see and you have all this stuff in your heart. So then when you go to another religious experience, you go to another Christian church and you get treated badly by somebody there or you go and their music's a little bit crazy or you have these, you start thinking, oh, you know, I, I should go back because this, this just can't be right. And Satan will also use all that stuff. That's why it's important for you not to leave until you really know the Lord has changed your heart. He will give you the strength to overcome those doubts and those things that are in you, which normally uh, I don't think come. When you leave, if you don't have the Lord with you, it's really tough. So I would do that. Caller challenges all viewers to write TV20 and you mean Spanish Fork. 
all viewers to write TV20. And listen, yeah, if you don't like the censorship that's occurred on the show, if you uh, don't like that at all, write us. You can email us, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at aletheamedia.com and tell us so we can take these into the management and say, look, you know, we don't need to do this. We can be bold. I'll try to keep my swearing and, and violence to a minimum and, and, and you just try to support us on things like this. Caller wants to know if this is true. Did the Doctrine and Covenants remove 70 pages which said that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were one? I don't know if it was 70 pages. Doctrine and Covenants, cer uh, certainly they removed entire sections. If you're talking about Doctrine and Covenants section 70, I think it was 71, which was entirely removed. Yeah, they have edited and re-edited and uh, changed everything. The Book of Mormon, for instance. In the press, we've gotten a lot of emails about this. They're saying changes were made to the Book of Mormon recently by the LDS Church. The Salt Lake Trib revealed it. Those were not changes in the text of the Book of Mormon. In, 18, in 1920 and then in 1981, they went in and they gave preface, italicized preface material to explain what the chapters were about. Those preface materials were written by Bruce R. McConkie, Apostle Bruce R. McConkie in 1981. In those preface materials, he said, this chapter is about the dark and loathsome people. What the LDS Church did is they changed McConkie's description of each chapter. That's what they changed. So it's not as monumental of a deal as them going in and changing literal words in the text that Joseph Smith said came from God, which they have done. 3,914 or 3,814 changes, not just commas and periods, doctrinal changes. Go to www.utlm.org and you can see those changes. For a book that was supposed to be translated from God's mouth to Joseph's ear to Oliver Cowdery's pen. They changed it. Why? Because it was wrong. And Joseph Smith didn't create a perfect book. Okay, uh, we've got two minutes left. Uh... Thank you. This is from Joel. Really like your show. I happened on while channel surfing the other day. My wife and I had our names taken off the LDS rolls this year. We both are very anti-religion now. My wife retains the Christian view of life, but I don't. I don't see religion, not just Christian, as very, ex I see religion as very exclusive and divisive, and it's my way or the highway. My personal view of life is that as long as one cares for and respects, loves all living and non-living beings uh, and is able to forgive themselves and others, all will be okay. If there is a God, how can God find fault with that? I'll tell you why, and because we're almost out of time. He finds fault with it because he sent his son. And he sent his son down here to die for you, uh, Joel. And you can take that lightly and say, well, I really don't believe his son. His son is not saying it's my, it, well, his son does say it's my way or the highway. But he doesn't give license to any church to say that. He is, it's his way or the highway. And he, God sent his son and he will have a problem with someone who says, well, I was just loving and kind and I didn't need your son that you sent to die for me. Now, I understand your burned out heart. I understand what the Mormon church has done to you. They have said, listen, your eternal salvation is based on this. And you went and checked out facts and you got burned out from religion because they've lied to you and you want nothing to do with religion anymore. I don't blame you, but go to God himself. Challenge him and test him and say, God, 
I don't even know if you exist, but I need to know before I take my last breath if you're there. Help me. Change my heart. Give me new life and test him, Joel. He'll do it for you. Next week, we're going to cover our last show of 2010. Zion, be there with us right here on Heart of the Matter. See you then.